Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have an awesome conversation to share with you. I just had the honor of speaking with uh, someone named Amy Emerson. She is the Chief Executive Officer of the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. You may have heard of MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Uh, they're doing tremendous work on advancing the use of psychedelics for uh, a variety of clinical uses, primarily in the treatment of PTSD. I'm a huge fan of what they're doing. Uh, I think uh, the work that Amy and the rest of the MAPS team is doing is, is going to have uh, unbelievable effects on people over the next 10, 20 years and beyond for handling trauma and uh, all sorts of the negativities that uh, you know people are, are experiencing in life today and accumulate throughout their lives. So, uh, Amy is a wealth of knowledge, really amazing uh, conversation here, and I know you're going to enjoy it. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Amy Emerson. Hey, Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thanks, Patrick. I'm excited to be here. So for the audience out there who maybe is not familiar with your work just yet, would you mind telling them a little bit about yourself and how you got into doing what you do today? Yeah, so I am the CEO of a public benefit corporation. Um, it's owned by a nonprofit. The nonprofit is MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, and I run the Benefit Corporation, which is the research arm of that group, and it's the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. And I've been working in this psychedelic research with our main project being MDMA to treat PTSD uh, since about 2003. And uh, it was kind of an odd start to it. I was already working in research and drug development in uh, HIV and then oncology and then in vaccines, another controversial area. <laughs> uh, <Yes>. And <laughs> I had gone to Burning Man in the late 90s. You know, a lot of stories seem to start with that. <laughs> <laughs> Burning Man. And uh, we were, my husband and I were picking up trash and uh, there was one that talked about the Mind States Conference happening in Berkeley. And uh, I lived in Oakland at the time. And uh, we were like, we should go to this. This looks awesome. Mind States Conference. And it was on psychedelics. So I went um, and we were like, wow, there's so many people that um, you know, have been doing this for a long time. It has this amazing history, social art. And you know, now research is trying to start again. And so I met Rick Doblin at that Mind States Conference. Maybe, maybe not at the first one, but at one. You know, It happened every couple of years. And talking about starting research for MDMA in humans again, and he talked about the long history of it and that he really wanted to do this as a nonprofit pharma. So there was also USONA at the time that was looking to do psilocybin development, but they're much more of an academic organization and my background is much more in drug development working for pharma. And I loved the idea of a nonprofit pharma. Um, yeah. I was listening to him talk about, about his dream of this and um, I was getting very excited about it. I'm like, oh, I understand drug development and uh, I understand like the regulatory process. I can totally see how this would work. It can follow the same pathway that anything else follows. We just have to follow what the pathway is for regulatory approval. And um, I think these, I've always had thought these tools would be amazing, that they should be available tools. So I looked at my husband and I said, I have to help him do this. Yeah. And my husband at the time was thinking and didn't tell me, which was kind of him. Wow, what a great idea, but this is crazy. Like, what a dreamer. It'll never happen. And so he kept that to himself and he encouraged me. And I reached out to Rick at some point and sent him my resume. And a couple months later, Rick called me and he was like, do you know how to write a monitoring plan? Do you know what that is? And I was like, yes, I do. 
uh, I'll do that for you. And he was looking to get ethics approval for the first MDMA study that ended up starting in about 2003. Um, he had already been working on this since like 1984. So it took a long time to get to that point. So I joined him right at that first study. He was already working with Michael Mithofer, um, who if anybody's familiar with our studies will know who Michael is. He's the um, key opinion leader, lead investigator, and one of the people that helped develop the treatment manual for this. So um, basically the three of us kind of started working together and for about six years, I did this on nights and weekends and volunteered my time to help get those initial studies off the ground, make sure they were done in an appropriate way that would be acceptable to a regulatory agency and that the data would then be usable later. And along the way we had success and we started to raise more money and then I was able to come on and develop an entire very small at the time clinical research team of a couple of people and then in 2015 um, we were hitting the end of our kind of phase two program so you have three phases to clinical development phase one phase two phase three phase twos are smaller kind of proof of concept studies in your um, indication which for us, us was ptsd and um, so we decided to move the research group into a benefit corporation um, that would not take investors be wholly owned by the nonprofit. And this would be to protect that mission, this truly this idea of taking something through with public benefit and not in mind and not profit maximization. And so then I had the opportunity to start leading the Public Benefit Corporation um, and really grow the team. And now I have 75 people on the team and wow. I'm the CEO. And who would have ever thought that would have happened from finding all the way back to finding a piece of paper on the playa about the Mind States Conference and volunteering for six years. So it's, it's kind of a fun story. Wow, that's amazing. And um, you know, it's even more amazing, you know, how long that uh, this mission has been happening for, because I, I think a lot of people have started to hear about MAPS and some of these studies uh, over the past five years, but all that time leading up to it, you know, there's the, the information on this stuff was so much more scarce. Could you describe a little bit about the, what was the lay of the land back in 2003 on, you know, just the public attitude towards psychedelics and, you know, uh, just kind of what you you were all up against in that sense? Yeah, I think there was a lot of preaching to the choir for us at that time because there wasn't that many people that knew about us. So you only knew about us if you were interested in this kind of area of research or, um, or you were interested recreationally or... Um, so it was, um, it was small. It was... Uh, we never really had too much negative uh, media or any, you know... It, it was just that we were small. A lot of people didn't know about it. So Rick would take every opportunity to talk about it um, and to really spread the word and to provide education to people. Um, and it was difficult with the regulatory agencies and with the DEA and with the ethics committees. I would say that um, the FDA was the most reasonable out of all of them, really, that Rick had wow. done a lot of work with the FDA um, psychiatry review group to... Um, gain their trust, really work with them. And we were fortunate to have a head of psychiatric products at FDA named Tom Loughran, who really believed in putting science before politics. And so that was a huge change in the lay of the land that allowed us to start to, you know, really be able to move forward. The initial studies that we did had a lot of extra safety parameters. Like you had to have an emergency room, uh, physician and nurse, like on call and overnight. Um, so it was quite different than it is now. And most of the people that I would talk to about it, they were like, what, that's crazy, you know? Um, and, you know, I worked in drug development at the time and I don't think that a huge number of people really knew what my side project was, but the close, I, I slowly brought people into it as I would talk to them about it and see that they had an open mind. But it really started to change as we finished that first study. Um, uh, it was um, MDMA for PTSD for PTSD from any cause. So it was a lot of women that had been suffered trauma and had been abused. And then there was a few vets in there and we had really good results. Like um, the people in the study had had PTSD for on average 18 years, treatment resistant and um, we had a significant number of people after two sessions that no longer had PTSD, um, wow. which that data really started to like, then that started to get some publicity. We were able to use that with FDA and, you know, and our safety profile and how well we handled the study 
to then move forward and start to do another study. And so that then that increased our fundraising, right, when we had those results also. So it was just this slow moving out of acceptance as there was evidence for it. Um, and at that same time, I think there was quite a bit of academic work going on, but it was, or NIDA work going on in psychedelics. Um, you know, we were able to start right with phase twos because NIDA had done so much work already on MDMA to try and prove how dangerous it was, which they never really did. Um, if you look at even at their websites, it's like considered like medium risk kind of a, a drug. Um, so, so there was still a lot of academic work going on and like what is the mechanism of action. So there's always, you know, kind of been the psychedelic work that's been happening in, in like academic places, but this was the first one that was in, in patients. And, um, I think the data is what started to change people's mind. And then, you know, that just kind of slow ramp up for a long time over that until we had a few more studies. We had some, you know, bigger pieces in the media. And what really changed things was Michael Pollan writing How to Change Your Mind. Oh, That's I can imagine. That's when I noticed like a huge jump, right? That was like when more of the public became interested uh, and really um, started to take notice of what we were doing. And it was no longer just that smaller group of like psychedelic enthusiasts. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Um, you know, I love that book. It's really, I, I recommend it to so many people. Uh, and it's, it's really cool to see how, how uh, you know, such dedication to the mission for so long has kind of, you know, bloomed into this much bigger thing. I feel like it's also interesting to see how it's gone sort of developed in parallel to, access to information over the internet you know it's kind of i think the internet's definitely driven things would you agree with that or, or how do you think the internet has sort of affected the the maps mission there oh i think it's i think it definitely has you know that's where people go to for information and arrow are you familiar with arrowwood um not particularly could you remind arrowwood me Vaults, i mean arrowwood's been around for a long time and they have been an amazing source of information on the internet uh for um all kinds of psychedelics and for people it's like uh, crowdsourced in, in a way where people all write in information and write in about um, trip reports and uh, uh, so yes. you know played a huge part in providing information um, and then also in just disseminating results and being able to um, have our website we had Rick had one of the very like there was a small number of websites out there when Rick first um, got the maps.org website. He didn't even really know what it was when somebody offered to create it for him. And I can't remember what year it was in, but it's always, you know, played a huge part in what we're doing in our ways to disseminate information. Um, we make all of the research articles available for free on our website. Um, and transparency is one of our principles and knowledge sharing. Um, so we've put all of our protocols, our treatment manual, everything online. And I think that that's been a huge part of gaining trust, right? Is that we're very transparent about what we do and about trying to help others that are also um, interested in doing the research. Yeah, it's a lot, uh, it's a totally different tune than what you get from a you know standard pharmaceutical company, right? You have no clue what's going on. Um, yeah, not very many people post their whole protocol, or post <laughs> all of their interactions with FDA, yeah. Well, that would be, you know, potentially betraying the bottom line, right? So that's, uh, you know, I, I can imagine that the, especially the pharmaceutical industry is particularly protective of that. And that's what's yeah. so interesting about, you know, maps and what you guys do is that it's not um, something that's driven by money, which is so different for, uh, you know, a lot of people think of, you know, kind of creating an illness and selling the cure is kind of the uh, standard method for uh, medicine in the United States today. And this is, you know, it's, it's really the exact opposite. It's so cool to see. Yeah, and it's, I think the other thing is that we're really, we really try to be balanced in sharing the safety and saying, hey, we're still studying this. This doesn't work for everybody. And we share what those results are. We share our safety profile and, you know, we share the efficacy, but we really try to be balanced in, in the information that we share. We try to publish in reputable journals. We always make sure that those journals then have, we pay for it to be free access to the papers and, um, we really want to differentiate that we're doing this in a different way. Um, because just being a nonprofit doesn't do it, right? Like we've, we've done some polls before, uh, uh, looking at how does the public, when you go outside of our smaller circle of people, how does the public view what we're doing, right? That, because these substances have been demonized and there's a lot of, yeah. 
And just one of the things I thought was interesting is one of the, when you just say, oh, we're doing it as a nonprofit, that does not create trust, right? I think there's been, in the way that there can be a lot of greenwashing, right? There's this idea of like, oh, well, just because like a nonprofit, yeah, that sounds good, but what are they trying to hide or what are they trying to cover up by? What's the overhead? Yeah, what's the, yeah, what's the overhead? So, uh, yeah, you have to, you have to actually um, put your actions where your words are, where your labels are. <laughs> yeah, totally. So how, how have you... What, what did that feedback that you received, how did that drive different actions or different decisions? Well, I think we realized that you have to say more than we're just a public benefit corporation or, um, or a nonprofit. You have to explain it a little bit more of like, we really are going to put the public benefit before profit. We're really looking at ways to create access. We don't take any investors. Um, you know, we're very public about what um, it costs to do the studies and uh, the one thing that we found that you say is that like no large pharma company is involved. This isn't a large pharma company's like nonprofit uh, and that this is actually in competition with SSRIs or, you know, other, uh, other drugs that people think of as a daily dose type of yeah. drug. When you, when you start to put that context around it, then people are like, oh, okay. Like you really mean it. <laughs> Yeah, that's, it's so amazing to me still that, you know, to even be able to compete with, you know, these large pharmaceutical companies that are selling something that you would take on a daily basis, how, you know, you, uh, it's come to market or to be able to provide a, um, a treatment that is, you know, you might only have to do one or two times yeah. uh, in your life to see the results. What kind of, have you seen pushback? Have you, have you, has there been conflict with any pharmaceutical uh, companies of, you know, uh, I'm surprised that they haven't yeah. you know, been more aggressive or something. No, I think, you know, the other piece of this is that MDMA is off patent. And that, that becomes an important part of the story also when you're explaining this to people is that it's off patent. We'll have a five year of data exclusivity where we're only allowed, like somebody else could develop MDMA, but they would have to do it fully on their own. Um, there's no, so so most people use a patent protection in order to create that and it's for however long they have left on the life of their patent by the time they get approved but we will have from the date of approval five years where a generic can't enter the market somebody else could only enter the market if they also do all of the development that we've already done and we would make we make that pretty easy because we put all of our information out <laughs> there so if somebody really wanted to they, they could have a head start but i don't think i don't think they would get there before us now we're pretty far along um but the, I forgot where I was going with this. What was the question? <laughs> oh, I mean, I heard, I asked what kind of actions, you know, you're oh, taking the, from that the feedback. Pharma, yes. So I don't think we're so interesting because it's off patent and it's, um, it's also not, it's not a daily dose drug. It's so it's, um, there's a huge market for PTSD. There's a lot of people suffering, but people have to be willing to do the work too. And there's also the therapist piece of it. So we have two therapists that are sitting with people um, during their three sessions. So there's three sessions of MDMA. They're one month apart. Um, it can't be take home. It's always going to, you know, it's in the office with three, with two people. Um, there's integrative visits. Like it's a, it's a fairly labor intensive process. And the fact that it's um, a drug assisted therapy is so different from other drug development programs. I'm not sure that um, it fits into most pharma models, and I don't think they, and I think that because it's going to create enough of that kind of slow ramp up, because you really have to have training, it's trauma, it's not daily dose, there's no patent. Like, I just don't think that they feel like there's a whole lot of competition from us for quite some time, you know, um, and there's always going to be people that would, that aren't ready to do the work, and so um, it's, a, it's a specific subgroup, I guess, of PTSD that of patients that we would be working with that, yeah, so far there, everybody always is curious about that. Oh, is pharma like kind of pushed back or tried to put a roadblock up? But no, in fact, we've had a lot of people that come from pharma that want to help us. You know, I think there's, there's a lot of people in pharma as much as we can talk about, oh, pharma companies and they're maximizing profit. Yeah. Most people go into this work because they do want to help people, right? You know, yeah. when I worked in drug development, I always worked in kind of public health type areas. And my motivation was 
to help, you know? And uh, so we have a lot of people that actually come to us and offer their time and their expertise. And it's actually been incredible to, to watch the support that we do get. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people in my team have, um, you know, have worked in traditional pharma before too. So. Has your motivation changed over time? Has anything particularly stood out to you that maybe you didn't see initially when getting into this that drives you, uh, gives you a little bit more of that passion today? I mean, hitting each success has made it even more of a drive. It's taken a long time, but it's interesting that other day when I, it just, it still feels fresh to me in a lot of ways. It's exciting. And I, I love the mission so much and I've believed in it from, it was kind of just like this moment of like truth when I told my husband that I wanted to help do this and that I thought I could help where I never lost that. I felt like I never looked back, you know, and it's been slow and it's taken a lot of patience and a lot of hard work, but each step has been encouraging. And so if anything, it's just been more exciting of like, wow, I thought we could do this, but like, we really can do this as long as we follow the, follow the map and we um, get good results and we do good research, like this can really happen. And so uh, it's even, you know, more, more drive for me as, but it, it's still based on that same, like in my heart, I thought these tools should be available and that I had a true belief that it could happen um, and that um, the right things would come into place when needed um, in order to make it happen. And that has been the case. Like the money has come, the people that we've needed, the expertise, the work, the relationship with FDA, um, all of the pieces have come. It's taken a lot of just belief and, and trust um, to follow the path. And that still feels true for me. That's incredible. And, and yeah, it seems, you know, you, you mentioned that there's three phases of the clinical trials. You've finished phase two. It, it must seem as if, you know, the, you, you could be closer to a destination than from the start at this point. Absolutely. We had, uh, we finished our first phase three study also. There's oh, wow. we need at least two positive phase three studies. Typically there's some caveats to that. Um, to get a, an approval. Some people, some companies do more than that. Like maybe they'll have five studies and two of them are positive and three of them are negative, right? So you have to do more. Uh, so we had our first phase three called MAP1 and it's been completed now and we're starting our confirmatory study. We're very hopeful that we'll only have to do two studies. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had kind of our biggest reality check in 30 years of the program uh, back in um, the spring, kind of right after uh, shelter in place started, we were at a, we were very lucky. We had finished our enrollment of our first phase three. And in order to do our interim analysis, which was for a sample size reestimation, we needed to have 60% of our primary endpoints in, and then we would do a blinded analysis. So I don't know the results, but I know that those results um, either meant that we, we said we did not have to add anybody to the study was the upshot of the interim analysis, which either means the study is failing, which I, in my heart I do not believe, or it means it's going well and we got the sample size right and that we still had the power that we had estimated in order to prove um, efficacy with um, a statistically significant study at the end. So at the time of the end, it's like predictive, right? Um, so that happened in the spring, and we were very lucky to be able to be at that time point. So since then, we've also finished the study, and we're finishing up um, our, what you call cleaning the data at the end of a study, which means like making sure there's no queries, making sure there's no questions. You do it all while it's blinded so that you don't introduce bias, and then you lock your database, and then you do your analysis. So that's coming in the fall that we'll be able to look at the actual results for that first phase three. And in the meantime, we've started screening for the second phase three, as well as we've started screening in Europe for um, an open label lead or an open label lead into our phase three study in Europe. Too. Oh, wow. Could, yeah. could you paint a picture as far as, uh, you know, the whole timeline to getting, you know, a drug approved like this and how far along you are versus how soon we could see this sort of reality actually unfold? Yeah, well, um, we thought we would be done at the end of 2021, but some things have happened that made it, you know, in phase three studies, everything is like a good rule of thumb of double the time double the money. Maybe now it's triple the time, triple the money. Uh, so we needed to do more fundraising, which we actually, since um, 
since COVID hit uh, and the shelter in place started, we actually finished a capstone fundraising, which was uh, $30 million that we were looking for donations of that amount in order to finish the phase three program. And we completed that just recently, which has been an amazing show of, of support that we've wow. had. Um, so we um, now have the second phase three to finish. Um, we thought that would be something that we could have a, a few years ago when we were planning, we thought that that would be at the end of 2021, but now it's going to be in 2022. So we think that we'll submit all of our data to FDA in 2022. Um, and then I would imagine the go to market and having this be more available would be something in 2023. So we're still a little ways off, but when you think about where we started our first study in 2003, we're really close. Yeah, seriously. End. Yeah. It's a little longer than most drug development programs. I think doing this as a nonprofit, raising all the money, doing one study at a time uh, has, has definitely made it longer and more drawn out, but um, we're getting there. I mean, you know, breakthroughs take time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what how do you imagine this, uh, you know, what do you imagine the impact to be, you know, around 2023, if things come together uh, as planned, how, how do you, you know, what is that, and, you know, sort of vision in your mind of this being sort of widely accessible, what, what will that look like? Well, we really hope to create wide accessibility. Our, you know, one of the things that's very different from uh, taking another drug to market is that uh, we have this whole therapist training piece to it, right? So there's two therapists assigned to um, each participant or, and they need to have um, training in trauma therapy and they need to go through um, our training program to understand how to work um, within our modality with the MDMA and they need to treat one person and get supervision uh, from our trainers on the first person that they've treated. So that creates a little bit of a bottleneck because people can't treat anybody right now unless it's in a clinical trial. We mm -hmm. also have um, an expanded access program which is going to be starting at the beginning of next year and that's um, that will allow more people to be treated and more therapists to go through supervision. So um, when we get approval, what we hope is that we'll have trained um, a, you know, thousands of therapists up to the point where they need supervision. And then after approval, they'll be able to go through treating their first participant and then they'll go through the supervision process. And then every year we'll be growing that. And you know, one of the things that we're looking at is how do we scale our training program um, we do uh, in-person training, and that's been a bit difficult with shelter in place. So we're kind of rethinking sure. things. How do we, how do we do this in a really thoughtful way? How do we use technology but also keep the human connection? How do we scale appropriately but also not too fast? How do we make sure that this therapy gets covered by insurance so that is accessible to all people, or that we do? Um, fundraising to ensure that underserved populations also have access to the treatment until a time when we can get insurance. All those things are remain to be, those are questions that we're working on. We're just starting to really develop what does our commercial program look like. So those will all be things that we're, that we're thinking about. Um, there's also a piece to our studies that we like to give people an experiential, um, the option for an experiential part. And so right now, people that go through our training program have been able to enroll in a phase one study so that they're able to receive MDMA themselves in a therapeutic setting. Um, I think this is, um, it's not required, but it is very helpful for, for people to understand what it's, for therapists to understand what it's like to work with somebody that's in an altered state of consciousness or just a different state of consciousness, that there's a lot of work that the person is doing themselves. We, we call this an inner, it's an inner directed work um, where the therapists are not leading this necessarily. The patient and the participant is leading this, that they're getting the insights that they need in order to work through the trauma. And then the therapists are there to support them, uh, which is a little bit different than traditional talk therapy that totally. we're used to. Uh, so if they can have that experience themselves and know for themselves, oh, this is when, when I'm laying here quiet, I am learning so much. My own inner healer is helping me to understand what needs to be done, what needs to be revealed, what insights I need in order to help me along the path. If you don't 
you can explain that to somebody, but if you don't have that experience yourself, it, um, you know, it's different. It's a different, it's a different type of understanding. So that, um, that's also something that we're trying to figure out how to do as we move forward to commercial because um, <clears throat> these are scheduled substances. Even at the time of approval, it will still be um, a scheduled drug. You can't just give it to somebody that doesn't have a diagnosis. Right now we can do it under a phase one study, but you don't usually have phase one studies going on indefinitely either. Yep. So this is another part of our training program that we're trying to figure out. It's also very important to us for access that, and I think this kind of ties into your program, is that there's two therapists in the room. One of them should be a licensed therapist and have trauma training. But what about the second person that's a support person? Do they need to be licensed? We don't think so. Do they need to even have a bachelor's? Maybe not, right? You know, right now that's the requirement is that they have to be, have a bachelor, the second person has to have a bachelor's um, and has to be in um, like a trauma focused kind of training program, maybe working towards a master's. But what about somebody that understands like somatic work, right? There's a lot of somatics that uh, work that and um, physical things that happen with people when they start to unravel their trauma. And why couldn't somebody that has more of that slant for their training and that background that's gone like from, you know, high school into an alternative type of training program be a very appropriate sitter um, as a second person in the room to help people going through this process. Could, could you so describe a little bit more what a somatic background uh, might uh, entail? Yeah, so somatic therapies would be working with people where it's like the idea that trauma kind of gets stuck in your body and it manifests in different ways. It's like pain um, or um, other, you know, uh, other experiences that way. And if you can help somebody to unravel and to tap into that pain or that feeling and release it, um, or go into it, that that's a clue for how to unravel the trauma, right? So there might be some things like where you put pressure on somebody, like somebody's really feeling something strongly in their shoulder, and that if you can actually emphasize that feeling by possibly putting some pressure on it or having them do something that helps to bring their attention there, that that's actually part of the healing and part of the release. Wow, okay. Yeah. 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 So just, you know, some more unconventional or it's a... Uh, less maybe institutionalized training. Yeah, so like there's um, a therapy called Hakomi, uh, and we have a lot of people that come to us um, uh, with a background in Hakomi, which is a somatic therapy, and there's many others. I'm not doing it um, justice by only uh, saying that one, and I'm sure there'll be people listening that'll be like, and there's this one and this one and this <laughs> one. So um, <clears throat> if, if anybody's done holotropic breath work, uh, you do some work with somatics and holotropic breath work also. Um, so these kind of more non-traditional type trainings that allow you to understand that container of supporting somebody that's processing a trauma. Um, we think that that is a very wonderful background, um, you know, and maybe there's group therapy and maybe there's some peer support. So we're really trying to look at this question of access, not just from for the, the patients, but for, um, for people that want to be practitioners. It's so interesting because it's, you know, trying to write the rule book and training manuals and programs for um, something that ultimately is, is just, it's decentralized. It's something that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't rely on, you know, the standard methods for prescribing a drug, a doctor's uh, sort of, or do, do you need a doctor prescription? Um, how does that work for like an average person if they were to receive that? You do. What I think what that my thought is, is that, and who knows how it will actually turn out, but we have been making sure we do our clinical trials both in private practices and at um, academic kind of settings or institution settings. So I think there'll be some, there'll be different options and that people could go into their private practice cl clinic and that clinic would need to have a physician associated with it that can hold a scheduled license. Uh, so this will probably be a schedule two or three um, drug, so you have a special license for that. And it will also have a REMS program, which is a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy program. That's an extra safety program uh, for drugs that the DEA and FDA might consider to be at a higher risk um, of abuse or um, uh, so, so there'll be, so there'll be, have to be a physician that goes through that training, the REMS training, it's probably like an online training, and then they'll have to write the prescription and they'll have to 
be associated and work with therapists that have been through an identified training program, either our training program or if we identify other ones that are acceptable. And so there's, there's multiple kind of pieces in place for how someone would um, be prescribed the treatment. They won't go to the pharmacy and fill it, right? Yes. It'll be prescribed at the office and it'll be, you know, in a safe at the office. And at that time they can take it out and um, they give it to the person for their treatment. Got it. I see. How many, what does the network look like right now for um, people who could perform this treatment? We have about um, 15 clinical research sites. In, we have sites in the U.S., um, Israel, and Canada. And then, as I said, we're also starting in Europe. Um, there's some people in Australia also working on this. Um, and um, also in Brazil, there's been a small study. Um, and our, with our training program, there's people kind of from all over that are going through training program. But pr clinics that are actually set up right now, um, I would say there's, you know, there's the 15 that we that we have, and then there's going to be about 10 expanded access sites coming online. And we're going to keep asking to expand expanded access, which some people might know as compassionate use. Um, we're going to keep trying to expand that all the way till we have approval so that more clinics can set up and start to treat some people under the compassionate use um, study that we have. So, you know, we're, we're thinking at the time that we have approval that maybe there would be 3,000 therapists or so, but I think we have to play with that some more um, and, and look at ways that we can try to scale that up further as we're getting closer and closer and as we develop um, this commercial program, that will be one of the initiatives that we really look at is how do we have more access at the beginning? Um, and of course, we're going to keep training people as we go. There's an interesting piece is that there's a lot of ketamine assisted psychotherapy that's happening right now. And those clinics are very much the model, I think, of what we would be looking at. So I think a lot of those clinics that are doing ketamine assisted therapies are perfectly set up to then also bring on board like MDMA assisted psychotherapy or psilocybin therapies potentially. Got it. Interesting. It's, um, I, I'm just always, you know, very future focused and imagining, you know, what this might look like in 10 years, you know, compared to our conversation today, as far as how many, you know, uh, how widely available or accessible or just, how many people generally understand, you know, what this is now? Because I still feel like for, for many people, this is completely, you know, if, if you're not aware of MAPS, if you're not aware or have never done a, you know, psychedelic like this that you get a treatment from, it's still, I feel like um, it's almost like a secret in a way where people don't realize that such a powerful treatment is, is on the way and so close to being available. Yeah. And maybe 10 years from now, people will maybe there'll be enough of a safety profile that people will have like licenses to like do this at home themselves, who knows, you know, or uh, a yeah. home visit where somebody can come and sit with you or there's group therapy. I mean, I hope, I hope that by doing this in a slow kind of a rollout and being very careful and very thoughtful and very safe um, that we are able to then keep opening the doors right to make this more accessible and you know always question what how to make how to make it more accessible and less restrictive and still safe um so i, I don't know what 10 years will look like i do i do know, know that we're going to be doing other looking at group therapies i know we'll look at um, other indications right now we have some pilot programs that are also looking at eating disorders um, eating disorders or really need some new treatments available for them, especially um, anorexia. There's just not very good treatments. And so we have a small pilot study that we're starting in uh, eating disorders, uh, also social anxiety. We had a successful study in social anxiety, uh, um, anxiety related to end of life illnesses. Um, that we did a small study with that and had a very good results that looks also promising. I think there's, well, there's been a study not done by us, um, but in with a close collaborator looking at um, uh, alcohol use disorder uh, and treating that with also good, uh, good results. And I yeah. think 
though it seems counterintuitive to people that you would use a substance that they've heard of as a substance of abuse um, to treat uh, um, substance use disorders. If you think about the origins of substance use disorders, a lot of times it's related to trauma. And so really being able to help people, um, you know, trauma manifests in all kinds of ways. It might manifest as PTSD, it might manifest in some other way or as a substance use disorder, or they go hand in hand, right? Uh, so being able to help people address their trauma, a lot of times addressed as a substance use uh, in addition. So that's, that's another thing I'm hopeful for in the next 10 years is that there will just be more ways that we can help people uh, with these tools. Yeah, I mean, it seems that, uh, you know, every, as time goes on, as uh, technology, social media gets more involved in our lives, it seems as if uh, nearly everybody is sort of taking on more trauma than what our, you know, primate bodies were ever designed to be able to handle. And uh, both, you know, between our, you know, endless online presence and um, just the complexity of life, it seems more and more um, like people are starting to develop, uh, you know, different mental disorders, uh, which manifest in some form of, you know, if they're, whether they're abusing alcohol or cheeseburgers or whatever, you know, there's some sort of uh, Maybe there'll know, be social media use disorder that we'll be that's, treating. That's what I was going to say. There's very uh, there's just a recent study that I saw. Um, I don't have the exact information in front of me, but basically, uh, like the suicides, uh, uh, the suicides for you know young adults spiking since 2007, right around when yeah. you know social media started. So it's oh, yes, social yeah. dilemma, the Netflix special. That oh yes, I, I just saw the uh, preview for it yesterday, and I haven't I had a chance to watch it. it. You know, I mean, I have a, I have a young daughter and it's um, frightening to see those statistics that, um, you know, suicidality in an age bracket that you just don't really think of it happening in unless, you know, unless there's been some trauma, um, like 10 year old girls, it's going up in 10 year old girls directly yeah. related to social media. Like that's scary. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I, I feel that, you know, in a hundred years, when we look back at, you know, the way we use social media today, it'll be similar to, you know, how we laugh at how doctors used to prescribe cigarettes, like that sort of thing. It's like, you know, like how do we let these companies control what, all that content that went into our mind? So unfiltered. Um, yeah. and so recklessly it's, yeah. uh, you know, so I, I think in that way, you guys are definitely lining up, uh, you know, maps is sort of doing some unbelievable work to get ahead of, whatever trauma people may be experiencing down the road uh, or how uh, widely understood the collective trauma of just, you know, living in 2020, living as a, uh, you know, living in this digital world can be for, for regular people. Yeah. I think another really important part of the work that we do is um, our harm reduction work. And that's not part of the public benefit corporation. That's maps. Uh, that's, you know, the, um, the maps group that, uh, we are a subsidiary of one of their initiatives is um, harm reduction. And I think that's a really important part of this. And again, very different from most um, drug development groups, right? Where we understand that this is, this is also something that people are going to be doing, that there's, that still when this is approved, there's, it's gonna be a small percent of actually psychedelic use will be in a medicalized setting. And that we want to make sure that there's education real education about psychedelic use um, that for people that explore on their own and ways to, uh, we like to say not just harm reduction, but benefit maximization. So if you can really help people sure. to understand the context and, you know, we go to festivals and we offer a lot of online, you know, education and training and information about how people can be smart and safe, uh, which I think is a really also important part of, we, we participate in these things like social media or, you know, maybe experimenting with a psychedelic without the proper knowledge. So that's a really important part to us too. I think that's a really important part to focus on because I think right now, you know, in a situation where it's not, you know, you can't uh, access it in a clinical setting, uh, like, you know, would probably make for the best experience. People just try things on their own, probably in an environment that doesn't support the you know, what the, the journey they might be about to go on, right? So it can lead but to- That can be changed if people understand, yeah. like maybe be in some nature, maybe have a supportive person, maybe not be drinking, maybe don't do it at a club, you know, kind yeah. of thing. Like just, I mean, people should be empowered to make their own decisions and to be smart about it. So 
I think that's a, it's really important for us to make sure that um, along with the work that the research that we doing that there's also just proper education. Absolutely. How, because uh, I feel like anytime, um, anytime someone is, you know, sort of behind a, a movement like this or, or behind a, um, you know, something of this sort where we'd be, you'd be essentially recommending others to try this pathway if it's right for them. How do you view this uh, for, for yourself and your own family? Um, well, I mean, I had positive experiences that made me think these tools were an important thing to be explored and that they should be available in a safe way. So uh, I can say that. And I, I think um, that just in the way that people can choose to alter their minds in other ways that, um, that, that really um, prohibition does not work. Um, and that it creates actually more harm than good. And I think people should have the freedom to choose and they should be able to choose something safe and know what they're choosing. Um, because the more you make this a prohibition and the more it's something that people don't understand, look at what the, what's happening when people are choosing to alter their state of consciousness and then they end up with fentanyl and they're dead, you know? Yes, it's, yeah. Right? Like that is what we want to avoid. <laughs> mm -hmm. and so we're, we definitely... Um, from MAPS, not from the PVC, where, like I said, like my, my part of the mission is really focused on the research, but I'm very supportive of the MAPS mission in general of drug policy reform and education. Yeah, I think it's incredible stuff. And, you know, back to sort of like the you know, decentralization of it all, it seems like, you know, just a much better system overall, because, uh, you know, right now, I think uh, doctors and pharmaceutical companies, they have good intentions, but the systems that they're a part of, you know, sort of, uh, leave a lot of people out to dry and also just leave uh, a lot of people in a situation where they're not really getting the help that they need. So uh, yeah. just education and Educating decentralization. Doctors and um, therapists on integration so that if somebody has had these experiences, when they come in to talk about it, that they should feel safe to talk about it and that maybe it can be become a part of something that's beneficial to them. If, if doctors, you know, so there's a lot of groups right now, like while this is something that's not medicalized yet, there's um, quite a few groups that I'm aware of that are trying to train doctors on, um, and not just doctors, I should say, um, but therapists or other social workers, um, mental health workers, coaches on how to help people integrate experiences. And I think that's so important. The conversation needs to be open. Uh, people are going to do this. Like people are going to yeah. alter their consciousness. We've been doing it for a really long time. It's not, you're not going to stop yeah. it. So, um, you know, let's, let's help the people that you might be going to, to like look for advice or look for integration, understand how to work with you. That's, that's another important part of this. And it's actually the integration, I should say, the integration visits that we have after the MDMA sessions are incredibly important. That is where so much of the work happens that during the MDMA sessions, a lot of it's actually fairly, can be fairly quiet. Some people talk more, but even when you do have somebody that's talking a lot, there's a, an encouragement to go back inside and see what's there and stay with the process and let it kind of unfold and learn from it. So um, at times it can be a pretty silent seven hours, you know, uh, with just some few checking ins and some, the, the participant kind of coming back out to say what they've experienced or an insight that they have or they might be really struggling and they get some help from the therapist as to how to go back in and how to keep working with it. But then um, the next morning you do your first integration visit, it's an hour and a half, and then you do two more of those integration visits prior to your next MDMA session. And that's where you really learn how to take the insights that you have. And that's where you really work with the therapist to figure out how does it apply to you? What does it mean? How do I integrate this? And how do I keep the, pro the healing process moving and, um, and, and unfolding. Um, and in fact, it really does keep unfolding. Uh, we, we do our primary endpoints for our studies two months after the last session. So if anybody's listening to me and thinking, oh, of course you're, you have good results, you're, you, know, you give somebody MDMA and then you ask them how they're doing and you test for their symptoms. Yeah. Um, uh, for one thing, the MDMA se sessions are hard the most common quote is, why do they call this ecstasy? And uh, because it is a hard work when you have trauma and you're actually going in there with the intention of working with it. Um, the, the other thing is that we do look at the results two months after the last session. And then we look again a year later. People actually improve even more 
from the last session and the, or the last measurement to a year later, um, we, we have seen that more people go into remission from their PTSD or have a clinically significant response. And some people relapse. This does not work for everybody. Some people don't, you know, don't have a response um, at the two-month time point, but then do at the one-year time point. You know, and of course, they're doing other things during that time, but they probably wouldn't have done those other things if they hadn't have gone through the treatment, right? It's, it's like allows you to start healing different places of your life, healing your relationships, healing your relationship with yourself. I think that's one of the beautiful things about the MDMA therapy is that people are able to reconnect with themselves and have empathy for themselves. Um, they can calm like their fear response. They know they're in a safe place. They can reprocess the trauma uh, without being triggered again. And this is like a process called memory reconsolidation and it works with the brain plasticity where it kind of allows them to know that that happened in the past. They're not in that situation anymore. And they, um, you know, they're, they're really able to continue to work with that, you know, over the next months. And then that has a profound effect on their ability to have, um, relationships in their life. So, yeah, sometimes it's that, you know, really small domino that can lead to a really big uh, result, right? Yeah, yeah. But you mentioned there uh, how it can be very challenging for people. And I think for, for some, they might, you know, um, maybe, maybe that could use some more clarification. So as far as, you know, in that session, is there certain questions or there prompts? Is there like guidelines for how to sort of laser in on what this trauma is? Because I can imagine for many people, they might not immediately know, right? They, they might have something lingering in their subconscious that's resulted in some sort of, uh, you know, whether it's drug abuse or something like that. Maybe they don't know exactly what that is because it's, you know, they've pushed it so far down or away from their line of sight. Yeah, it's a, that's a really good point. A lot of times people come in and they have to have a qualifying um, PTSD diagnosis on the, um, it's a gold standard measurement called the CAPS. It's like the clinician's assessment for PTSD symptoms and um, and severity. And um, so you have to have um, a precipitating event that triggered the PTSD. And so one of the, like a good example of that is that there can be war-related trauma. So vets might come in with a yep. trauma that's war-related, but typically once they get into uh, the treatment and they start to like dive in, there's usually something much further back there that actually predisposed them to then that event being mm. something that created treatment-resistant PTSD, and they just have buried it deeply. Um, and I and this happens, this happens often. There's all, there's usually not just one thing. There's one thing that that people remember or think that that was the event, um, or it can be, um, it can be ongoing trauma. Racial racial trauma is usually not one particular event. People are kind of suffering traumas over and over and over again. Um, and so there may not be kind of one thing that creates the PTSD. It's, it's being in that um, environment for an extended period, living your life that way. Um, so that usually, what, 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 what the therapist asks patients to do is to go inside and like really, you know, stay with the difficult emotions, stay with the process. Um, and that allows it to unfold so that they can really understand. And there, there's something important about being able to understand your own narrative and understand like your trauma and how it happened. And um, so you don't necessarily have to remember in detail everything um, in order for the healing to happen, but there is something helpful about being able to piece the story together. And I think sure. MDMA helps that to happen because people, MDMA decreases fear and it decreases um the, uh, in the brain, you can see a decrease in the activity in the amygdala, increase in the prefrontal cortex. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but I'll leave it in that for here. Uh, and so uh, they're able to kind of do it in this safe, uh, safe way that really does allow them to go deeper and understand the trauma more, where typically you would start to remember something and then you close down, right? Mm -hmm. It's too intense. It's too much to remember it. Got it. Interesting. Um, thank you for that answer. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, you know, over, let's, let's do the 10 years in the future again. Uh, 
What do you imagine being some of the largest hurdles to get over to, you know, deploying this to people that need it? And how do you think that, you know, maybe someone listening to this might be able to get involved if this was something that they think they could see themselves being a part of? Um, I think their hurdles is, like you're saying is, well, I mean, we need to get through our phase three, most important, right? Get through yep. the phase three and uh, have the results, get through the FDA approval process. And then in parallel to that, it's um, figuring out how to train therapists, support therapists, um, allow and find ways for this to be paid for, right? We really need this to be accessible to, um, uh, you know, to anybody that needs it and wants it. Um, so I think that those are some of the barriers. Making the MDMA, you know, the drug, that that whole production, that commercial production, that part is, is is like for us is not so so difficult. It's not so complex, and we have contract manufacturers that do that. But the payer part and the scaling it up and um, the figuring out. Uh, the best way for the clinics to be able to do this and be viable, um, you know, while still providing access and putting patient public benefit first, I think is the hurdle. And then um, the best way for people to get involved, I mean, right now it's um, through doing work with people with trauma, you know, so getting involved in some way, whether it's like I said, in these kind of somatic therapies or kind of alternative therapies or becoming a licensed therapist. Um, and if what you want to do is more research than finding an academic institution that's really interested, uh, uh, already has a program. And there's a lot more institutions that have psychedelic programs now, Johns Hopkins, UC Berkeley, UCSF, Imperial College, uh, they're, you know, they're expanding uh, MUSC. Uh, there's a lot of academic institutions that are creating psychedelic programs so that that can be part of residency and part of um, something that they offer people that are going into healthcare. Um, so I think it just depends what, where your interest lies. Uh, like what part of it do you want to be involved with? Well, it certainly sounds like there's an abundance. If you want to find new molecules. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so there's an abundance of places people can get involved, and I think this really is going to be one of the, uh, you know, major industry of the future. So, yeah, um, it's pretty amazing. I, I I really appreciate the work that you do uh, every single day. I think this is you know kind of uh, blows the doors off of what most organizations um, one are capable of doing, or two, the impact that these this could have in the long term for real everyday people's experience in life, and especially as I mentioned before, you know, I. I foresee a, a lot more trauma uh, in the future um, just from living through this world that's sort of uncharted with all this technology and uh, things that we just never adapted or evolved to to encounter yeah. so I appreciate the, the work that you do that, that we're really looking at is um, trauma related to being a healthcare worker especially during this time of COVID of um, kind of like um, it's like moral injury and burnout is sure. also an area that we think this could be very helpful yeah, I can imagine. And you mentioned also the, uh, you know, something like racial trauma, you know, it's a, another very uh, pertinent issue of the day, which I think it, I'm, I'm starting to believe that just everyone has some degree of trauma um, from some, you know, just growing up is just never an easy process. So someone, everyone's likely had some degree of trauma that may be stunting some part of their lives, some part of their happiness and overall fulfillment in life. So, um, you know, perhaps this will be uh even more widely available to everyday regular people uh, as time goes on so that they can, you know, get whatever assistance they need to, to, you know, move past those things. The, the trauma of living. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, it's not a, it's not an easy life out there. So it's, it's, yeah. it's gotta be something. Um, if you have no trauma, then you probably didn't do much. So, <laughs> so it's just a, uh, yeah, well, I'm excited to see where this goes. I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, I wish you the best of the luck for these phase three trials. And, um, and once again, I think on behalf of everyone that listens to this, uh, you know, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. Do you have any um, conversation? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Do, do you have any final um, asks, requests or final words for the audience before we wrap up? I think, um, you know, everybody can help in this by um, being an educator right? By opening people's mind. Uh, people recommend How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. 
go to maps.org and share the information that's on the website. I think that people's minds change about these types of things by having conversations with somebody that you trust, right? It's, you know, fine. The media is great. That helps. That can open the conversation, but having somebody that you, that you trust and that um, can point you towards real information is extremely important so that when these uh, hopefully options become available um, that we've already started to deal with some of the stigma. And the other thing is I think destigmatizing mental health discussions in general, that that's another way that all people can, can help is that if you've suffered, um, you know, sharing some of that with people that you, that you trust and what has helped you. So let's, let's all do our job of destigmatization. Love that. Thank you for that. Um, well, I appreciate your time today and, uh, and look forward to seeing the progress in the future. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.